I had a friend who would uh, take classes with me in my doctoral program, and uh, when I would fly out to Pennsylvania, we would uh, go out for lunch between our breaks, between our modular classes. And uh, he was a missionary in uh, Ecuador, where he served uh, amongst the natives there, uh, planting a church. But I thought about him as uh, I was thinking about the series that we are in, in the fight that we are in as Christians, and the battle that we have with the flesh, with the world, and the devil, that most of us know that our primary warfare is with the flesh. It is true that we have the world in which we live in, and that's probably the second stage of our battle. And then we have that third stage, which is the devil, the, the idea that the devil and his minions, and not the movie minions, but his, his uh, demons, his followers, his fallen angels, are actively engaged in a battle that ultimately sometimes we cannot see, but then there are times we can see it, and it's there. But well, here's my friend. Um, one of the battle that he was having was obeying the law. And all of us have that issue in our life. And it was uh, that realm of the flesh. Now, you might not think it was that big of a deal, but uh, I, I ate lunch with him all seven days. And uh, I would get in his car, and we would go find our restaurant that we were going to go get a, a hamburger or a sandwich from. And uh, he would just go right through the stop signs. And... Um, I thought, I, I, I said, George, uh, why are you going through the stop sign? This was after the second day. I don't want to die. I want to go back to my family. He's like, wow, it's a governmental ploy by the government to make us stop and use more gas. That's why I just kind of glide through. I said, you're not gliding through. You are actually going through the stop sign. We're going to die. We're going to die, and, and, and uh, it's your fault, all your fault. But, in, but inside him, there was this battle of the flesh that he did not want to obey the law, the law that was over him, the natural law of government that is over all of us, and, and we're all uh, responsible. We're obliged to follow it. We must follow it. We must obey, and there's that tension. There's the tension for the Christian uh, believer, even in this passage, do I follow the law? What is the basis of the law and how does the Spirit then work in my life as a Christian? There lies the tension. So if you want to write down something in your Bible, in chapter 8, there's tension. Just like in a good story, a good story has tension. The tension's here. Chapter 7, we've been introduced to the law. Matter of fact, all the way from chapter 1 of Romans, you've been introduced to the God who is the judge of all the earth. And he has been, he's in this courtroom and he's invited all those in attendance to come and hear how the judge will rule. And if you've ever been in a courtroom, you know what that looks like. I remember a long, long while, several years ago, I was driving my, one of my best cars. It was, a, it was a Subaru Legacy. Oh, I got that on a deal. Guy from church was selling it. He had come up from... Uh, Texas. It had no rust. It was a sweet deal. Bought it for $2,200. I mean, you couldn't do that back then. That's what you could back then. And he gave it $2,200, and uh, it had tinted wheel, or tinted windows, and, and uh, I, I hadn't been taking good care of it after a while because I'd driven it so many miles, and I was on Orchard Road uh, in Oswego. Um, I had busted my window, tinted windows on top of that. My driver, my license plate in the front 
was, uh, had fallen off, and I didn't know about that. I didn't have, my three hubcaps were missing. I mean, it became, this car needed to go to the junkyard by then. Um, but I got pulled over, and the officer from Oswego was like, uh, uh, you know you're in violation of several ordinances in Oswego. I'm like, really? Like what? You can't have tinted windows. You have to have hubcaps. So if you're from Oswego, I didn't know that. By the way, you better get hubcaps for your car. You're, you're obligated to follow what? To follow the law. Well, I was, I was traveling on Orchard. I was going to preach somewhere. You know what that feels like when you get pulled over on Sunday morning and you get lambasted with uh, different, you know, uh, things that we've got to follow this, got to follow this. And I, just my flesh began to fume because now I have this $375 fine. That I have to, and then I have to show up at Kendall County Court. I mean, it was, I had to show up. Um, the flesh begins the war, uh, and you begin to say certain comments to the police officer that you probably are going to regret down the line, hoping that maybe he won't show up for that court hearing that you have to go to, and you will have to pay that $375 fine. There is a tension for the Christian today. Do I follow the law? This law. Now, I want you to think in terms of, we think in terms of governmental laws. I want you to look at this passage in view of this law that the nation of Israel had. And, and Paul is writing both to the Jew and the Gentile that, that the Gentile who has no law is still guilty under the law. The God of all the earth has called both Jew and Gentile into this court proceeding and he finds guilty each one of us because we are guilty by the law and we have uh, gone against God's wills, God's standards, and God's ways. And the Jew that has the law and it's written on their hearts is still what? Guilty. And so God is this judge, the holy judge, and he says, I want you, you are obliged to, you must follow, you are obligated, you are in debt to the law, because Jesus is the one who fulfills the law in your life 100%. Jesus fulfills every part of the law. And isn't that exciting? I think at times we look at Romans and say, I don't understand Romans, I don't understand the complexity, and there's a lot of complexity here. But if you look at chapter 7, he says, um, it's, it's very interesting in verse 14, he says, for we know that the law is what? There's, you should underline this. The law is spiritual. It's a, it's a spiritual undertaking. The law, the law of God is a spiritual work. And, and it's written, and the, the beauty of the New Testament is that it's been written on our hearts. It's been engrafted on our hearts. It's been chiseled, no longer on stone, but it's, but it's on our, our heart. And, and, and this is the work of God's spirit in our life, and this is why we can obey um, God's law, because the Spirit is there. There is tension between the individual who's controlled by the flesh and by the Spirit, and as we look at chapter 8, and the greatest truth here in verse 1, there is what? There is now no condemnation. The judge says you're not guilty. John Stott, in his commentary on the book of Romans, says this is not so much about the chapter on sanctification as some may misinterpret. It is more about the term justification. You are made right with 
a holy God. The law now says you are not guilty. You're set free from the bondage of sin and death. And you and I need that. So there is no authentic spirituality outside of Christ and the Spirit. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the Spirit today. If you don't have Christ, you don't have a new mindset that has developed because of the Spirit's power in your life. There is no authentic spirituality outside of Christ and the Spirit. And this is not some new Christianity. This is not some new mantra that you put on. But it is the the essence of, of Christ reigning in your life through the Spirit, through the inner man. And you are different. You're made alive. You're quickened is the old term, the old Wesleyan term he used to define it. You're quickened by the... You're made alive and you're set free from the bondage of sin. There is no authentic spirituality outside of Christ and the Spirit. And because of the Spirit in chapter 8, we are able to reign with Christ and to find freedom in that. For he says, were those who live according to the flesh, verse 5, set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Therein lies true spirituality. If you set your mind on the Spirit, you're set free from this bondage, this control that puts you to death. You're unable to stand before a holy God. But now he says you are. Verse 9 says that you are, however, not in the what? Not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He says to the Romans, you are Christians. You've been bought. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the beloved son of Jesus Christ. You are a spirit-quickened believer in Jesus, and you don't have to obey the desires of the flesh. The flesh will kill you. The flesh will put you to death. The flesh makes you guilty before the judge of all the earth. That's what Romans chapter 1 reveals to us. You and I are guilty before the holy judge. And we need someone to vindicate us, someone to purchase us, someone to give us a law that he can hold to and follow with all his heart, with all his mind. And Jesus is the one who fulfills that for for us today. But that does not mean we just can the Old Testament and the laws and the systems and ordinances. Those are all what? Shadows of things to come. These are all things to teach us what it means to be holy and contrite before God Almighty. So when we look at these images in the Old Testament as Christians, it's, it's instructions for us. This is what God demands. What did God demand? Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, is our holiness. Why did God not enact it? Because he wanted the people to be holy. Why did God keep the people away from the tabernacle? Because they were sinners and separated from a holy God, and they needed to be holy. Okay? Why did they offer up sacrifices? They needed to make payment, restitution for their sins and their um, lack of following God's um, ways. So there's this tension for the believer here today between the individual who is controlled 
maybe by the flesh, and you do have your fleshly desires, and we'll learn, later learn here in this passage that we're put to death the, the deeds of the flesh as Christians. The old fancy word is mortify, the mortification of the flesh. And so there is no true spirituality outside of Christ and the Spirit. And so number one, as you look at your outline, that the Christian can obey God's law when one walks by the Spirit. And this is how they do it. A life controlled by sinful nature is in hostility with God, and it ends in death. He brings us to light in verse 5 and 6, and also in verses 7 and 8, and he, he wants us to understand it. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. We'll drop down to verse 6. For, for to set the mind on the flesh is the what? Is death. Drop down to verse 7. Again, he's emphasizing, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, is at war, is at enmity with God. Notice what he does. He does not submit to God's law. Now, there is that tension there that I might, in the earthly sense of how government may have laws and ordinances, and your town, your city might have different things that you have to do. And as a Christian, I'm obligated to follow that rule, that ordinances. I have to stop at a stop sign. I'm, 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 I'm commanded by Scripture to do so. I'm commanded by Scripture to, to follow what a government has placed over my life. Um, and as long as it doesn't violate conscience. That's a whole other sermon in itself. A life controlled by the sinful nature is in hostility with God and ends in death. Therein lies the beginning tension. That if you're of the flesh... You're dying. If you don't have Christ, you're in a state of death. And death is death. You are dying. You are dead. You, if you go to a funeral, you see a, a, a dead person, a person who's passed away. They're, they're what? They're, they're dead. They're not getting up until the resurrection. Whether it's the resurrection to life or it's the resurrection to death. And if they don't know Jesus, they're going to be resurrected to where? To a resurrection of death for eternity. Is that clear? That if you don't know Jesus, and flesh here is in the sense that this is the fleshly, you are a sinner. Now, flesh in the New Testament, as often as, as you have maybe heard through sermons and Bible studies, flesh can mean the physical self, the body that actually, you know, I have skin and sinew and bone. That, that it reflects, reflects that. But, but oftentimes in the New Testament, flesh is, is talking about a mindset, the, the, the fight that you and I are, are living, the desires that we have inside of us, that war and wage with, with, with heart and with our mind and our thoughts about who God is. And so we need the Spirit to wage that war, and we need Him, and ultimately He will win if you are a child of God. So he begins, and he shows you two comparisons, a person who is apart from God and a person who belongs to God. A person who does not obey the law is a person who is not a Christian because they're not led by the Spirit of God. This is why then we can pray. This is why then we can also suffer for glory's sake, for Christ's sake. A life controlled by the sinful nature is in hostility with God, and its end is death. The sinful nature, then, is characterized by a few things. Number one, it's characterized by opposition. 
meaning a person of the flesh opposes God. Opposes God. This is why I am always, and this is nothing to pound myself on the back here a little bit, but I'm going to do that. See? Good job, Joel. This is why I'm successful. This is what I believe. I'm always successful in evangelism. This is my belief because God is sovereign. He's not relying on me to be the best. What he wants me to be available, and he'll carry the work out. So every time I am active in sharing my faith, it is up to God to what? To soften the heart and to stir the heart and to convict the heart. It is my job just to be available. How beautiful in chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So when I know when someone opposes the gospel, they're of the flesh. They're living fleshly lives. It is not my, oh, I, did, I could have, could I have spin it this way? I'm going to spin it this way, the next. No, it's, it's God, the God of all the earth convicts the individual. And I rest in his sovereignty that at the end of the day, I can put my head on my pillow and say, okay, Lord, you carry this to the end. If you desire this, you will convert their heart to the gospel. But we know that the sinful nature is in, is in opposition to the work of God. You remember in chapter 5 of Mark's gospel, there was a man that was demon-possessed, and he comes running when Jesus and his disciples uh, enter into the land of the Gerasenes, and they, they park their boat, and they, they get out, and this guy begins to cry and begins to come down from the mountaintop screaming, What do you have me to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy? I mean, this is a violent scene. Okay? I'll just put that in your picture with the demonic. And Jesus puts a silence to it, doesn't he? The demons are opposed to Christ, and so are those who are of the flesh. Fleshly non-believers oppose the work of the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 11 uh, through 18. It gives us a, probably a better picture here. But he says, there is no one righteous. That includes you, by the way, because apart from Christ, you were what? You were dying. You were in the flesh. You were on a state of, of death. And Christ makes you alive through the what? Through the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is very doctrinal. This is very scriptural. Verse 11, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. Apart from the gospel, this is what you do. These are your practices. Notice what he says, verse 14, your mouth is full of curses and bitterness. These are conditions of the flesh. These are, these are uh, characteristics of the flesh. There's bitterness. There's, their, their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Ultimately, therefore, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They're in opposition to the law of God, and ultimately God's work. Verse 7, chapter 8, he says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is in hostile to God. Therefore, leads us to our second element here of a character quality, a person living in the flesh. It's evil, evil in unrighteousness, evil 
uh, scheming, evil plans, evil desires in chapter 1, verses 31 through 32. You're familiar with this. He says there's slanderers, there's haters of God, they're insolent, they're haughty, they're boastful, they're inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish and faithless, heartless, ruthless, although they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but then look what they do. They give approval to those who practice them. That's even worse. You like to gossip? Good job. Right? Keep doing it. That's me giving you what? Approval. Okay? That's a person of the flesh. That's a person dominated by the flesh. And, and if this be your life, if there's envy, verse 29, if there's murder, Jesus says if, if you hate your brother, you murdered him. They're like, I've never really run someone. No, I've never taken, taken a gun and shot someone. But if you hate your brother, you what? You have committed manslaughter, right? You're haughty, you're boastful, you're inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Scary. Disobedient to parents. A third tension that we see between the flesh and a person who's controlled by the Spirit is that there is a lack of peace with God. In verse 6 of chapter 8 of, of Romans, he says they lack peace with, with God. For to set the mind of the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the Spirit is life. There's the contrast. If, if you're of the flesh, you have no peace. But if you're in the Spirit, you have what? You have peace with God. And, and peace is not this tranquil tranquility of I'm sitting on clouds and like, ah, oh, la, 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 or sitting on a beach and, oh, this is so nice. It means you're not guilty. Peace in our life means that we're no longer have war with God. God has broken down the wall of hostility between you and Him. And He does that through Christ, through the Spirit, where He quickens your life, and you're no longer dead, but you're made alive. Now, in the natural sense, you are, all of us, are, are, are dying. Our earthly tent, as, as the Scriptures declare, that we are we are dying, and we need this earthly tent to put on immortality. And we're looking for that day, aren't you? Aren't you looking forward when this mortal body is changed? Huh. It's changed. But the person of the flesh is one who has no peace with God. There's no peace with God. But for the Christian, there is peace. When troubles do come and the waters do rise, there's peace for the Christian. When there's difficulty at your workplace and things are just not going well, you haven't seen a raise in five years. The bottom line margin, profit, is just dead. You can grow grumbling and you can complain and get in your car and head to work and this is another dead meat job that my boss is a low life, he doesn't care about me, I'm going to go get a new job, I'm going to show him who's boss, and I'm going to, so, so, but for the Christian, because he's of the Spirit, and his life has been quickened, 
you, you begin to stop yourself in mid-sentence and say, I can't think like that. I can't behave like that. I can't, I, ethically, I can't respond that way. And because you're quickened by the Spirit, you're made alive, your true spirituality does come out. That doesn't mean you don't struggle with the flesh and those desires and those temptations that loom around the corner. They are there. But it leads us to then our second point as we look at this tension between the flesh a person controlled by the flesh, and a person controlled by the Spirit. For there is no authentic spirituality outside of Christ and the Spirit. For you who are a Christ follower, you are made alive. And so a converted life is namely a one who comes to the gospel, is in union with Christ, is when the mind is renewed. There is a new state. There is a new place. There is a new opportunity. There is a new dimension that God brings us into a new standing, a new family, a new way of life, a new mindset that develops. And so a resurrected life of sonship will do the right thing. You will do it. You're you're debtors to it. You're, You're in debt to Christ for what he did through the gospel, and so that calls you to a higher standing. Your justified life, you say, well, I'm justified. Thank God I'm justified. I'm declared righteous. And then our mind just goes right to sanctification of holiness, which is true. But there's much more to the the realm of justification that you're declared righteous. It means this, that you won't keep doing what you were doing in the flesh. Those habits in chapter 1 of Romans, you won't be insolent anymore. You won't be showing bitterness. You won't be showing these habits that will make you guilty before a holy God. The flesh can take war over you. You do the right thing. For my friend who was a missionary in Ecuador, he needed to do the what? The right thing. Like, oh, is it really that big for him to go through stop sign after stop sign after stop sign after stop sign? Yes, because he's breaking what? He's breaking a law that God has allowed the human institution to enact, and he's to obey it. He's to follow it. He's to adhere to it. He is to do what God has required. And for him to continue to do it is to question his resurrected life of sonship. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, so why are you living like that? Why are you doing that? Why? There ought to be a deliverance, a movement from darkness to the light. And the only one who can do that for you first comes through Christ through the Spirit who's in you that causes you to do it about face and you do it. You do it. And then you surrender. And you lift up your hands and you say, I cannot live this life, Jesus, without your spirit reigning in me and for me. The gospel is for you. And if you do not preach the gospel to yourself daily, you miss what it means to be justified by his grace. Jerry Bridges is right. The Puritans were right. Preach it to yourself. Preach the gospel. Remember 
that you are standing before the holy judge that lets you go because of Christ. There was a pavement. Christ sealed it. He paid it. His blood shed on Calvary's tree. The deal was made. The debt was paid. But now you have a debt. You have an obligation. You have an obligation to the resurrected life of of union with Christ to live differently, to live differently before the world, to live differently before God Himself because His Spirit marks you. His Spirit is in you. You are the temple of the living God. He has purchased you with His own very blood. That's a costly, that's very costly, and it's not cheap. And if you cheapen it, you're not a Christian. Grace is not cheap. It's unmerited. It's given to you freely of God's good will. He gives it to you. You receive it. But that doesn't mean it gives you freedom to cheapen it and toss it out. Play with it. Do what you want with it. And at the end of the day, say, I'm a Christian. The truth is this. There are very haunting passages throughout the New Testament that show us that if you're in the flesh and you're doing habits of the flesh and you practice these things, 1 Corinthians is very clear. It says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. A spirit-filled Christian does not do the deeds of the flesh. Very cautious words here, very warning here for the believer who is to be spirit-filled. Therein lies the tension for you and I. Is there tension? Yes, there is. Because it seems that Paul in this passage is saying that the Romans are what? They are not of the flesh. They are Christians. That's very true. But he's also giving you a picture of what it doesn't look like for the believer. You do not look like this. This is not what you are. You're not of the flesh. You don't do these activities. You don't do these things against the Spirit because the Spirit has quickened you and made you alive and you are in right standing before God of all the earth. So a resurrected life will do the right thing. You will think about the activities that you are involved in, the relationships that you have developed in your life. Do these represent a spirit-filled life? The conversations you have will be checked and marked along the way to make sure that they are pure words. The the things that you see in in a normal day will be marked and checked again and reviewed back and forth. Lord, is this what I need to look at? Is this what I need to see? Your mind will be able to stop more frequently on given situations and you'll be more reflective in your thinking and your pattern. Oh, I better not say that. That will get me in trouble. You know what? It's better to be quiet and not say something quickly and stand in judgment. And so you pause and you stop. When you really want to bite out at that person, when you really want to, you know you want to do it. You just want to crack the whip and do it. But the Spirit makes you pause. The Spirit stops you. Because a Spirit-filled Christian walks by the Spirit. A spirit-filled Christian doesn't do what the flesh really wants you to do because you're obligated, you're in debt not only to the law, but to the Christ who is the one who lived by the law 100%, and you are in debt to that. 
thanks be to God, because he's the one I can look to and live like and know that even in my failure, he accepts me. Even in my disbelief at times, he accepts me. Now, what he does is this resurrected life of sonship that he, we get to have is this inheritance of a new position. Verse 3, he alludes this, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh uh, and uh, for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. Drop down to verse 4. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law. Please understand that there was righteousness in the law. As, as he's going back to this Old Testament, and, and largely as he's reviewing here chapter 7, chapter 6, all the way through, he's trying to show you that, that the law was spiritual. It was, a, it was a sanctifying work of God to reveal sin in the nation of Israel. So don't disregard that. Oh, I don't want to live by the law. All the Ten Commandments are blah, 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 blah. Reveal them. Because they're God's word. Every scripture, every word is inspired by God. And when you read it, it nourishes your heart. It breathes life into a dead man's soul. Converts the heart. Converts a person to the gospel. It brings about a resurrected life of a new position, a new standing before God. Verse, verse four, four verse um, five. He says, "For for to set the mind of on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the spirit is life and peace." Wow. When I set my mind on the things of the Lord, my life is changed, and therein lies authentic spirituality, because you have Christ. And you have the Spirit. And then he talks about, and he moves this thought along to verse 5. He says, a resurrected life has a new mind, uh, a new mind of life and peace in the Spirit. And this, that will take us to chapter 12. But look at what he says in verse 5. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds. It's a worldview on the things of the, It's a worldview. It's thinking. It's reflective toward the world. But those who live in the Spirit think differently. They are like the Psalm 1 individual who's planted by streams of living water. Its fruit never what? Never withers. Never withers. But the fruit always yields in season. Be like a man. Ultimately, a new mind, a new life, a spirit-filled life has peace with God, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. But ultimately, in chapter 12, you're able to have peace with who? Peace with your neighbor. Peace with your neighbor. Those who maybe you're struggling with. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. And as far as it depends on you, you what? You live at peace with all men. You live at peace. A good friend of mine, um, when I grew up, a young man, um, was adopted into God, uh, to a family. And uh, his adopted father, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, acquired cancer 
and he uh, pancreatic cancer, and he uh, recently died about a week ago. And uh, this uh, friend of mine that I grew up with lives in Madison, Wisconsin, and he called me out of the blue, just just out of the blue, uh, the other day. And he's like, "I'm really mad. I'm really mad. I wanted to go and visit my 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 adopted father, be at the funeral. I don't know what to do." But there's been some strained relationship with with um, his his adopted mom and his brothers. And uh, so I had known that, and I just, he kind of repeated that. And, and I, so I said, you know, this is what you need to do. You, and I read, wrote him, Romans chapter 12, read it to him. I said, you need to seek peace. If you're a spirit-filled believer, you're telling me you're a believer, you need to live at peace with all people. So these comments you're making about your mom and your brothers, and you need to have a new way of conversation. Not the backbiting. Not the rubbing in, not the memory that, yes, it hurt, it scarred, it, it's, it's wounded. You need to live at peace with all men. You need to let God reign. You need to let the Spirit reign. You Facebooked me last night and said, I'm, I'm dealing with this passage that you told me to read over and over again, and I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. I just want to fight out. I want to fight, I want to fight, I want to fight. That leads us to then our third point. A resurrected life of sonship is one that fulfills the righteous obligation both to the law and the spirit-filled life. Back to chapter 7, verse 14, very clear. He says, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Okay, verse 12, there's the greatest part here. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you're by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you then will live. You will live. And then he says, then all who are led by the Spirit of God are then truly sons of God. Therefore, there is no spirituality outside of Christ and the Spirit. So the obligation for you then is to put to death the flesh and the misdeeds of the body. That's your first point under number three. The obligation then is to put to death the flesh and the misdeeds of your nature. The misdeeds, these things that, well, we learned early from the Puritans this idea of the doctrine of mortification. Presbyterians loved this precious doctrine of faith. And it's the idea that you put to death. You put to death the sins that so easily entangle. They, they repeat Romans or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. As you're running the race of endurance, you lay aside the sins that so easily, what, mess you up. You, you put it to death. You get rid of it. You release it to the gospel. And the gospel will come in and wash you and make you clean. And you will forever be reigning with Christ as his son in the kingdom. That's what... Reform um, Presbyterians believe as, as they look at this precious doctrine. And this is what it, it's teaching here, that you're putting to death the sin. There was this old story of a pastor and a congregational member. Uh, every sermon, pastor would preach, and this man would come forward at the closing of the service, and he would kneel at the altar, and he would pray for all to hear, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. 
Sunday after Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, the same man would come and kneel at the altar, kneel at the altar. The same words would be repeated from this man, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. The pastor getting fed up by this man's sentence prayer every Sunday, year, month after month. Finally, at the end of the year, the same individual came forward, nailed at the altar, say the same prayer's prayer, and the pastor spoke into the microphone, oh, would you kill the spider in his life? That's mortification. Kill the spider. Put it to death. Kill it. Kill it. That's what God is calling each one in this place today is that how do you live a spirit-filled life? You kill the sin. Get to the core of it. You remove it. You get rid of it out of your life so that, that there can be authentic spirituality in Christ and in the Spirit. And so secondly, you have an obligation in this passage, verse 13 and 14, to walk by the Spirit. In verse 14 he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have, have what? You have the spirit of adoption. And this is some encouraging words for us today. The first thing that we find is that we don't have to fear the slavery of sin. Because you're brought in by the gospel, through Christ, through and by the Spirit, who quickens you, makes you alive, and you put to death the deeds of the flesh. You kill it. You kill it. Can you say it with me? You kill it. Now, I'm not, I, come on, you got, you got to say it a little bit louder. Kill it. You got to kill it. You got to kill the sin. And who gives you that ability to do it? the gospel through Christ, through the Spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we don't have to fall fear to the slavery of sin, verses 15 and 21. We can enjoy our new family, verse 12. Notice what he says, you're adopted. Wow, it's a beautiful statement. We are debtors not to the flesh, not to the flesh, but we are in many ways debtor to who? In debt to a holy God, that cost a great deal his son. Don't cheapen grace. Don't cheapen the cross of Christ. There was a great cost paid for you. And you can enjoy being part of the family of God. This is what he says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? We are children of God. Please underline that in your Bible. You are what? You are a child of God. You're part of the family. When the gospel comes in, you're part of this new family. Not only the family, as we understand this, the family of future and the kingdom and eternity to come, but you're also made part of what we call the church family, both universally and locally, when you have a right standing before God. And then there's some more encouraging words. And, and number three, he gives us that we can pray in a new way. I love this. Um, We can what? We can literally pour out our lives and say, Abba, Father. You know, Abba, Father. What what do you see there grammatically? You see two exclamation points. What does that mean in English? You're supposed to what? Get all excited about that. You're supposed to be shouting that out. So in one, two, three, we're going to say that. One, two, three. Three, Abba, Father. That wasn't good enough. One, two, three. 
Abba, Father. See, there's this new way of prayer because in the Old Testament, they weren't able to utter the words, Dad. But now they can. Holy God, Yahweh, you are my what? You are my what? You are my, my father, my dad. And I can pray to you. I can cry out to you. I can pour out my deepest emotions, my deepest pain, my deepest thoughts, and you listen to me. That's the beauty of the spirit-filled life is that we can pray at any moment. We don't have to go to the priest. We can pray right now, right here in this place, in our car, at a forest preserve, in our house, at the dinner table, in our beds, while we're watching a soccer game. We can pray. We can cry out. Number four, verse 16 reveals then another encouraging truth that we have the assurance of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit because there will be a time in your life where you will doubt. There will be those split moments when you're with friends, young people, playing a sports game and doubts come into your life. I remember those moments where just for why did, that, why did that thought come into my life at a weird time when I was doing something? Just out of the blue. Maybe when you're driving, a thought just a comes right through your life. Is there a God? I wonder if I'm saved. I wonder if, did, did I really confess Christ? Their spirit The Holy Spirit bears what? Bears witness with your spirit. Gives you assurance, the assurance of faith. You're a child of God. Kids were young, younger. I remember one of my kids asked, how do I know? How do I know that I'm saved? How do you know that you're saved? The Spirit bears witness with your spirit. Now, that sounds so weird. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. You know it. Other people see it. And that's the beauty that other people get to see your fruit, the fruit that the Spirit bore witness in your life and the gospel's taking root. There's a changed life. There's a changed way of thinking. There's a change of behavior. Maybe you're not as grumpy as before. Maybe you're not backbiting. Maybe you're not fighting. Maybe you're not swearing as you were. Lastly, there is then or number five, we enjoy then as children of God, we enjoy then his inheritance, verse 17. Children then heirs, heirs, heirs of God. We're talking royalty, not just the British line here. We're talking part of the inheritance because when you look at royalty from the England, Great Britain point of view, they're not going to have any type of kingship yet until the person dies. But this passage teaches that you have kingship with Christ. You're an heir. You're part of the family. All the inheritance that was given to Christ is given to you. By the way, you were adopted. You were brought in. That's another truth. You're adopted, and you're an heir. You're brought in. Number six, we move from inheritance then to our life, and this gets in the area of sanctification. If justification has happened in your life, you are declared righteous before a holy God, and you can cry out, Abba, Father, then you can suffer for Christ. Verse 17, 
and children and heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we then lastly will await future glory. Future glory. Wow. Suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. He moves toward verse 23 of Romans and talks about this present suffering in way to future glory is not a John Piper terminology here. This is biblical. It is this idea that you're awaiting as I suffer. And friends, I think we're just seeing the beginning days of suffering here in the U.S. And the question will be before us, will we be willing to suffer for Christ as a picture of our justification? and ultimately of our future glorification. Will you be able to suffer for glory's sake? Hymn writers get this right often in the old hymns that talk about present suffering meant future glory. Present suffering equals future glory. Johnson, I would love to have the name Johnson. Hello, Johnson. You're Johnson. His name was Johnson Oatman, Jr. He wrote this song. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining, new every day. So praying as I onward bow, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. My heart has no desire to stay where doubt arise and fear dismay. That's the flesh. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher ground. I want to live above the world, though Satan's darts at me are hurled. For faith has caught the joyful sound, the song of saints on higher ground. I want to scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory bright. But still I pray till rest I found, Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith in Canaan's tableland, a higher plane that I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Let's pray. God, we desire this to be our life as we've been justified fully. Heirs with you, heirs adopted delivered from the state of the flesh. We're to kill our flesh. We're to kill the sinful behaviors, the sinful desires. We're to kill the spider. And Lord, as we live this life, may we look toward future glory. May you sustain us. Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.